Amen. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And, and what I do is right now, I just ask you to stand with me as we turn to God's Word, uh, because we're just going to jump into this this morning. It's a long passage. We stand together for the reading of God's Word because this is the foundation. This is the only authority upon which we, we can stand. So this is John chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I don't know what to ask of you this morning other than that you would speak to us. Just as we just sang, just as we just prayed together out loud, that you would speak, O oh Lord. That you would teach us this morning. That you would shout to us, because I'm a hard-headed, deaf person, Lord. I pray that you would shout so loud that I couldn't avoid it. That you would speak in such a way that we wouldn't be able to run and hide from it. But that you would call to us with that same voice that you called to Lazarus. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, every, every parent knows that feeling. It's, it's, that, it's that weird feeling that, um, like when you hear your child calling in the middle of the night, you, you know that if, you've ha- if you have children, you know that sensation. Uh, maybe it's a bad dream, right? Maybe there's... Maybe they're just having one of those, uh, they've had a long day and they're, they're, they're just, they can't get to sleep. Maybe, but maybe it's something more than that. Not, not too long ago, our youngest son woke up in the middle of the night. He is uh, screaming at the top of his lungs, just as loud as he could, which is really rare for him. If you know, if you've ever seen that one, he's one who, if he's awake, he's in perpetual motion. Uh, it just, he, he never stops. And so when he finally, when his head hits the pillow at night, he's, he's done and we don't hear from him for like eight hours. It's, it's awesome, honestly. Uh, it's, that wasn't in the notes. That's just a declaration to you of the awesomeness it is when he is finally out for the night. And, uh, but one night he wakes up crying, just screaming at the top of his lungs. It was, one of those, it was one of those cries that you don't hesitate to move toward. Um, you know, sometimes you sort of delay. It's that sort of middle of the night. Let's see how this plays. Let's see how committed they are to waking me up. You know, that type of a type of thing. Maybe that's just us. I don't know. Um, this wasn't that. This was one of those cries where, where you, you must spring into motion. Uh, and so it was a race between uh, mom and dad. We are working our way down to his bedroom is not that far from us, but we were running. And if y'all, if y'all don't know Laurie, um, I'll, I'll give you a little insight into how she functions in that moment. Uh, she will knock you out of the way to get to her child, right? I mean, she plays dirty in the race to go help the kid. I mean, I, I, I had to recover the next day from the elbow, right? That's kind of how it is. She will literally put you in the wall and make you a problem to deal with later to get to her child. But, uh, but that's what parents do, right? That's what mamas and daddies do to get to their kids who are 
in need. They will fight and they will scratch and they will claw and they will strive with everything in them to get to their children who are in need because they love them. Because they love them. That's what people do for the people in their lives that they love. They'll, do, they'll go to great lengths for the people in their lives that they love. And that's what makes the first part of this passage so weird, so frustrating. Because, because you see, in verse 1, we're introduced to this family, two sisters and a brother. That's all we, that's all we know of them, uh, who live in the town of Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, right? It's a suburb of the holy city. They're, they're out there, kind of not, the, not in the sticks. They're right there. They're, they're, they're movers and shakers. There's a, in fact, there's, there's reason to believe that this was probably a prominent family there in, in Bethany. And the brother, this man called Lazarus, has fallen sick. It's a, we don't, we don't really know the nature of the illness other than that. They're scared enough to reach out to loved ones and communicate it, right? Uh, we see that call to Jesus in verse 3 where, where the message sent to him, He whom you, did you catch that? Whom you love, he whom you love is ill. Notice that they don't ask Jesus to come to him. There's no explicit request, hey, we need you to come now. They just sort of assume that when Jesus hears this, that some movement is going to take place. That he's going to, that he's going to feel something and he'll just come to him. It's that it's this one whom you love, like a brother, that's the word for love there, this, that, that philo love, that this one who you love is sick. This brother of yours is sick, and it's serious enough that we thought you should know. So this is more than a cold, right? This isn't just a, he's had a bad night. This isn't I'm not feeling well. This is serious enough to warrant the call. Like, I don't get a call when a loved one of mine has a runny nose, but if that same person goes into the hospital, I'm going to get the phone call. I'm going to be called to come to them, and I'm going to want to go see them. And John even heightens this affection that Jesus feels for Lazarus in verse 5, where, where he uses the word agape there to describe that love, that agape type love. It's more than brotherly love. This is more than just mere affection. This is that love that if you, if you have the Jesus storybook Bible that, that Sally Lloyd-Jones has encapsulated better than anyone else that I've ever heard, in which she says, he describes this agape love of God as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now that's a mouthful, but it's worth memorizing. The never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the love that John expresses that Jesus holds for Lazarus. It's the love that it's the love of a father for a son or daughter. It's the love that springs a parent, a parent immediately into action when their child is in need. But Jesus delays. He doesn't go running to Lazarus. He stays away. He delays. And so if, if we were watching this, like if you and I were watching this play out on a screen, if we were sitting in a theater right now and this is being acted out for us, we'd be shaking our heads in frustration. If we'd been watching the gospel of John play out from start to finish, if we'd seen everything Jesus was capable of, and we hear of this love that he has for Lazarus, and then he chooses not to be moved, we'd be sitting there going, what are you doing? Like, this is your guy, man. This is your friend, your, your brother. Everybody in town knows you love him. You care for him. What are you doing? 
Aren't you the one who turned water into wine? Like, aren't you the one who, like, you healed an official's son, somebody you never met, you healed that person without ever even seeing them. You just said, let it be, and it was. You healed a lame man, made his legs walk. You're the man who fed 5,000 other men with five loaves and two pathetic little fish. You're the one who walked on water. What are you doing? If we were watching this play out on ground level, we'd be just like the people in verse 37 who said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Maybe you've, maybe you've felt that in your life at some point. I mean, maybe you're in one of those seasons right now caught in that tension of of constantly hearing that Jesus loves you and constantly feeling like he isn't there for you. And so like like my son in his bed that night calling out for Mama or, or Mary and Martha here in John 11, you feel the weight of darkness, you're calling out in faith, and all you want is for this one in whom you have trusted, all you want, the cry of your heart, is for him to come to you in this moment and help. But perspective is important. And we see two perspectives in this passage. This is what Kent Hughes says. He says, we see the ground level perspective in Mary and Martha and the divine perspective in our Lord. Perspective is an interesting human reality, isn't it? How we see things is an interesting phenomenon that exists in our species. It's like flying into New York City. This is my, this is my best illustration I got. Is when you fly into New York, when you fly, we always flew into LaGuardia, and you look over at the city, it's going to be on your left, out that window. And so if you ever take your kids to New York and you want them to get a good view, have them sit on the left side of the plane, land in LaGuardia, they'll see the whole thing. They'll fly up the East River, and you'll see it all. And you see buildings, and you see streets, streets, and you see avenues, and it looks like it's perfectly laid out. It's nothing like Charleston. You see this massive city, and, uh, and it's a cookie cutter. It's just straight lines, and it looks so manageable. It looks so easy and simplistic even. There's a brilliance to it that's hard to even describe. And from 30,000 feet, or by that time maybe 14,000 feet or whatever, you look at it, and you go, this is going to be easy. But then, but, but then the plane lands, right? And, and, and very quickly, you end up in a, in a cab with a, with a Muslim driver who's in the middle of Ramadan, and he's frustrated, man, because they've been fasting from sunup to sundown, and he's ready to flat-out run over anybody who gets in the way. And that's a true story. Um, <laughs> but we, we, uh, there's actually somebody in this room who was with me and my daughter in a cab, and we thought, this is how it ends. This is... <laughs> This is what's about to go down right here. And so this is, and, 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 before, and now it's moving 1,000 miles an hour. And all those people who you couldn't see, the 8 million people who live on that tiny island, now they're all in your way, every single one of them. And, and, you, and you are trying to move, and you remember seeing it from the sky. You had that 30,000-foot view of how it's supposed to be, but now you're on the ground, and it's a mess. All of it. It's all a mess. You see, that's... That's the perspective that we find ourselves with so often. It's those feet on the ground, feet in the trenches of life perspective. 
and all the tension that comes with that because we have this glimpse of what it should be. It's that sort of echo of eternity in our hearts, right? That's where Mary and Martha are right now. Last week we talked about what it meant to be in the grip of grace. We talked about what it meant to be held by our good shepherd. And now here in this passage we find Mary and Martha gripped by fear. They're in the trench of desperation knowing that an inevitable pain of loss is coming for them. And that they are powerless to do anything about it. But they aren't without faith. We saw it there in verse 3. When they sent word to Jesus of Lazarus' sickness. That is a faith-filled message that they have sent to Jesus. And we see it four days later when he arrives on the outskirts of Bethany. Look back at verse 17 with me. And just look at all the details in there. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Okay, so, so that's a lot of detail in there, and that's important, right? Uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Right? That's what it says. He's been in the tomb for four days. That's important. In an era before EKGs and before coroners and before modern medical equipment, this is his way of making it clear that Lazarus was really dead. John is making that point for us. He is laboring to make that clear that Lazarus was really dead. He hasn't just been dead for four days. He has been in the tomb for four days. He's gone. The next thing we should notice is that the exact lo- is that we're given the exact location of this event. And I don't know if y'all have noticed this as you read through the Gospels, but a lot of the ministry of Jesus happens in sort of a geographical abstraction. We'll hear things like, he went to Judea. In fact, he, the disciples even say that in this. Are we sure we're going to Judea, right? Judea is a massive area. It's a region. It's like living here and saying you're going to Columbia. It can mean, it can mean anything. People in Lexington say, yeah, I live in Columbia. People in Irmo say Columbia. People in the Northeast live in Columbia. People as far as Batesburg will tell you, yeah, I live in Columbia. It's like, you do not live in Columbia. That's it, not where you live, actually. But Columbia is this amorphous blob of humanity, right, that nobody really understands other than that it's really hot here most of the time. It has no identity. That's what Judea is. It's just this massive amount of people. But we're told he went to Bethany. And not only that, we're told that it's the Bethany that's two miles away from Jerusalem. Because you know what? There's another Bethany across the Jordan where John the Baptist did some work earlier in the Gospel of John. So not only is he in Bethany, he's in the Bethany that's two miles from Jordan from Jerusalem. Sorry, And he is there in the home of Mary and Martha, or at least in the village of Mary and Martha. That's where he is. You know why that's important? This story is going to spread. You think? You you raise a man from the dead, that's probably a story that gets told. How easy would it be for any of the hundreds of residents of Bethany to say, no, that didn't happen? Or all the people who've come from Jerusalem to mourn with them to say, eh, we were there, that didn't happen. You see, John is intent on us knowing there's a historicity to Jesus' ministry, that it didn't just happen as a story, that he's not a myth, but it happened in reality. And so he gives us these details that 
anyone throughout the ages could have said, no, I was there. That didn't happen at all. In fact, he yelled at the tomb and nothing happened. It was really weird. We rolled away the stone and it was just... Details are important. We find those details in Scripture. Pay attention to them. The last thing, and then we're going to move on, is we see that the crowd of Jews had come to console Martha and Mary in this time. They came to offer comfort. In fact, some of them would have been like professional mourners. I don't want to get into the history of that because that's just a weird season of human history. But they would just, that was what they did. Somebody dies, all right, we're going to move into this town. We're going to mourn for a while. That's, that was what they did. They were like paid to go and cry, all right? Which is the worst job ever, by the way. Uh, those people who had come from Jerusalem, they would have been acquainted with the Jesus story. All right? Jesus has made a name for himself in Jerusalem by this point. He's not just floating in, 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 in secret. He's been doing these things in public. And so they would have heard of him. And so what that means is there are some witnesses there to this. It's not just Martha and Mary at the tomb. There's a crowd. And that's where Martha gives us another demonstration of faith. We saw earlier that faith caused them to call out. And here we see at this point that their faith was not circumstantial. Like love, true faith is never circumstantial. We, we hear the same thing from both of the sisters. Did you notice how they said the exact same thing? In verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 32, Mary shows up later and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think that maybe they've been talking about that for the past four days? Do you think they've been sitting in the living room or the whatever their house looked like going, you know, if he'd have been here, I mean, that's what I'd have been doing. If he'd have just shown up, you think the people in the room, the, the mourners from Jerusalem, heard that and were kind of going, ah, you think, are they going crazy? What's, you know what I hear them saying? This is what I think, this is, what I, this is purely, um, uh, this is purely me reading into this, but I, I think I can hear the guests who had come to mourn with them saying, you have to let this go. Isn't that what we say a lot in tragedy? You need to let it go. There is nothing that could have been done. Wouldn't that be what you were saying? If you had been invited into the home of somebody who just lost a loved one? You know, it was just his time. I'm literally quoting myself. But for Mary and Martha, their faith wasn't conditioned upon the severity of the circumstance. Even after Jesus delayed in coming, they still hold to the faith that says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear that? And that was when Lazarus was, uh, or, or sorry, when Lazarus was still alive, faith said Jesus can save him. You, you see that? When he's still alive, they're going, if you had been here, he would not have died. And then when Lazarus has died, faith says, Jesus could have saved him. Their faith has not been shaken. True faith is not shaken. The once, and once faith is present, it's unconditional. True faith is not circumstantial. The author of Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance is like a title or a deed. That's what he means when he's saying that word for assurance. It's the guarantee. It's the deed 
to the property. It's not something that we have or bring to the table, but something that God holds secure in his hand, right? It's what David said in Psalm 37, 23, that the steps of a man are established by the Lord. He says, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. It's the Lord who holds our hand. If it was dependent on my faithfulness, I would fall every day. It's God's faithfulness to us. That is the assurance that we have. It's like when your child is first learning how to walk. Some of you remember this. They're, they're first learning to take some steps and they will, and they will hold on the, or they will, they will boldly move, right? I mean, the baby starts taking the steps. That, you know, our kids were, I think, relatively early walkers. They, they, they were like 10 months and they're just wobbling all over the place because they're holding on to your hands and, 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 and you're enabling them to move and they think they are awesome, Right, But if you let go, you, you know for a fact they're going down quickly. They will walk boldly and confidently while they're being held by the hands of their parents. That's assurance. And conviction of faith, that's the evidence. It's the proof. It's the validation. It's what we see when we look back on what has happened with eyes to perceive. We see the hand of God. Again, the child learning how to walk doesn't know until far later that they were only able to do that because they were being held by the hands of mom and dad. They were only able to stand because they were being held up. It wasn't because of the strength that they had. It wasn't because they're hyper-gifted or coordinated. It was because they were being held. The conviction is what God gives us to hang on to from the past as we take steps in the present. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's a confident expectation. And at this point in the story, we have a conviction in the person and work of Jesus. And it's a tangible, tactile, walking assurance. A, a, a wine-making, lame-healing, sight-giving assurance that is fueling the faith of Mary and Martha. And what we find in this passage is that faith However strong our faith might be, it is always too small. The disciples believed. They did. They believed, but they couldn't comprehend the magnitude of what Jesus could do. That had not yet sunk in. They saw all the roadblocks. Listen, Thomas was ready to run to Jerusalem, right? Remember Thomas called the twin? Evidently, he had a twin. We don't know anything about the twin. We know Thomas was called the twin, and he was ready to run with Jesus into Judea. But what did he say? Come, let us also go, that we may die with him. He's got this view that we're going to walk, but it's not going to go well. That it's going to end badly for us. He was scared of what might happen as they went on there. I, I said this, he, he's, he's been on that path before. It's, it's like the parent who goes running into their room, but they, they've known because they've stepped on the Legos before. Like They know I'll run with abandon to get to my child's room, but when I get there, there are probably minds to deal with. In our house, it's Imaginex figures. They have pointed feet. They will ruin you in the middle of the night. We know that. See, Thomas knows that because he's walked through those minds. Let us also go that we may die with him. Martha had faith. She believed in what Jesus could have done for Lazarus in the past, but she had a defeatist view in the present. As Jesus called for the tomb to be open, as he said, take away the stone. Did you hear what Martha said? 
Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. The King James Version has one of the most beautiful translations of this uh, statement by Martha. It says, my Lord, he stinketh. Her conviction at this point is that Lazarus is too far gone. It's time to let him go. There's nothing that we could have done. It's that whatever could have been done cannot be done now. It's not an empty faith, though. She still holds on to what he could have done, but they can't do that now. It's an incomplete faith. It's the type of faith that I wrestle with, personally. It's the type of faith that I wrestle with. I believe in what Jesus has done in the past. I trust and rest in that. I have assurance. I even have conviction of that. There's evidence of it, but I struggle with my doubts about what he can and what he will do in the present. Anybody else? I forget that I haven't been left on my own, that I haven't been forsaken. I forget that when Jesus saw the effects of sin in this world, that when he walked the earth, he didn't just hover above it at 30,000 feet looking down at it neat and pretty, but was down on the ground with his feet in the trench right along with me. I forget that. I forget that when Jesus saw the tears in their eyes, did you see his response? It's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. He felt it right along with them. You see, I've taken that for granted. And when I start to take the love of Christ for granted, I forget what he said to the disciples at the beginning of this passage, where he said that this whole scene, this entire deal, had a purpose. We've said as a church that we exist for the glory of God and for the good of others. That might sound overly simplistic, and sometimes I feel like it does. I read vision statements and mission statements of churches all the time because I'm constantly feeling like we have to have a better one. But I think that simple one's really clear, that the reason we exist is for the glory of God and the good of others. That's why we are here. In verse 4, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. That's what he said. And what he means is that This is what Mark Johnston said on this, is that whatever lay ahead, death would not be the final outcome. He's saying that death would not win. And then he says this. He said, it is for, this is Jesus speaking, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Did you hear that? There's a purpose to this, beyond our feet on the ground perspective. It's a purpose that we can't understand when we're in the room with the people crying. It's a purpose we can't understand when we're looking at the tombstone or the stone that's rolled in front of the grave. It's a purpose that we can't understand when our feet are on the trenches because we lack perspective. Later in verse 14, Jesus says again to his disciples, he says, listen to this, just imagine, I am glad that I was not there. Everybody in the room, everybody, everybody in town knows he could have come and done something. But she says, I'm glad I was not there so that, see, there's a purpose to this, so that you may believe. You see, it's for their good. 
One of the biggest misconceptions about this entire passage is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead for his good. Being, Lazarus being raised the dead wasn't good for Lazarus. By all accounts, Lazarus is friends with Jesus. He loves him. He got beckoned back from, from paradise to come back here. Raising Lazarus from the dead wasn't for his good. It was for yours. It was for yours. Lazarus didn't want to get sick. He didn't volunteer for that. You, you know, nobody asked Lazarus, here's the plan, man. When you hit about 30, well, you're going to get sick and you're going to die tragically. That, that wasn't his plan. But pain and suffering, sickness and sorrow, those things don't work according to our schedule, do they? They don't. The flu doesn't ask my permission. Never has, even if you get the shot. Cancer does not wait on us to be ready for it. It doesn't. It doesn't wait for us to go, all right, here's the deal. At 89, I'll be ready. It doesn't do that. And then you know what would happen? You could be 89, you'd be all right, 97. I'll be ready. And 97, you'd be like 104. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants the mess of life. And we don't get to schedule that, but it still comes for us. Lazarus didn't plan this illness. The mess came for him just like it comes for you and me. That's what it means to live with our feet on the ground. It means that trouble comes and finds us in the trenches of this life. And I'll be honest, sometimes it finds us because we went looking for it. Like Paul said in Romans 7, right? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I keep thinking foolishly that I'm just going to outgrow this tension in my life. That, the, that I'm going to somehow grow beyond being surprised at the mess of this world. And then the phone rings, right? It doesn't get easier but our faith does grow. Jesus does continue to work. That's what we see here. We see it when Jesus calls the name of that dead man standing at that tomb, and he says these words. It's very specific. This is important. He says, Lazarus, come out. Why is that important? Lazarus, come out. And in ancient times, most people didn't get their own tomb. You'd be in the family tomb. If you've read of the patriarchs, they had their family tombs, right? The tomb of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph found that his bones returned to his land to be buried among his people. There's great speculation that if Jesus had just opened the tomb and said, come out, that there might have been a whole party of people come walking out of that tomb. He said, Lazarus, come out. Again, Jesus is very specific. He gives life to whom he gives life. Lazarus, come out. And so Lazarus was called back into this world, not for his good, but for ours. Through his own tears. I mean, you can see him standing. You see Jesus standing there with tears in his eyes, knowing he's about to beckon this man back into the brokenness of this world. In order that we might believe, in order that we might trust, that we might have faith in the Son of God. And what we know is that one day, Lazarus had to go through it all again. His 12 hours, to use that language that Jesus used at the beginning of this, his 12 hours would come to an end. 
He closed his eyes. He took his final breath. They put his body, what a profound funeral that would have been to put his body back in the tomb where it had once laid before. And he went to be with Jesus in glory. Can you imagine the impact of his witness? Having been a dead man, now alive. Can you imagine the impact of his witness? In fact, we'll get a glimpse of it in chapter 12 where the Jews determine the best thing we can do with this guy is kill him off. They want to get rid of him. They want to get rid of him. Jesus calls his people to walk during the day. That's what he says. There's 12 hours of day. Walk in the light of the day. Walk with our Savior. Live in the grip of faith. Live in the grip of the resurrection and the life. The one who calls dead men out of tombs. You see, true faith not only believes, it also gets to work. And Jesus wasn't done working here. His job wasn't finished. As profound a miracle as this is, as unbelievable as it might be to you that Jesus could call a dead man out of the tomb, and as we might say, look at how great an impact that would be, that is not the reason that Jesus came to this earth. He did not come to this earth just to have compassion on the hurting. He didn't, so, he didn't come so that he could even exert his power over the grave. Jesus came to earth to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we're told. He came to give his life to save his lost sheep because he heard the cry of the afflicted. He heard the brokenness of sin and it brought tears to his eyes. And like mama in the middle of the night, he came running. Fighting and clawing and striving after us because he sees us, because he knows us, and because he loves his people. He would go so far as to die for his sheep. And he did that for you. I mean, yeah, the person beside you too, but he did that for you. He died for you. The bad news is that because of my sin, because of your sin, he had to do that. The good news for us is that he did it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I mean, how can we thank you for that? I don't know that we have the words to say. Um, I oftentimes find myself saying words do not do justice to the gratitude I feel in my heart. And I feel that in this moment. But Lord, I thank you for coming and paying the penalty for my sin. Coming and taking my sin, my guilt, my shame upon yourself. That I might be purchased. That I might be redeemed that I might be held in your hand. Lord, I thank you for calling a dead man from the grave. And I thank you that you still do that every single day. Lord, would you use us in that work? And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.